And now, Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it meets us right where we are. Father, we come here, each one of us, living through a different set of circumstances, and your word meets us right where we are. We pray that your word would minister to us, that it would feed us, that it would nourish us, that it would strengthen us, and that as we study your word, Christ would be exalted and glorified. We pray for our kids who are here today, both inside and outside of the womb. We pray for their salvation. Uh, We pray that seeds of the gospel would be planted deep within their hearts and that you would... uh, You would have prepared this soil in their hearts and that you would preserve that seed in order that it would bear fruit in your time. We trust you with these things. We trust you with our children. We we trust you with their salvation. And we ask that you would help us to be faithful disciple makers of our children. Use this time, O Lord, to strengthen us and to glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of John. We'll be continuing our study in John. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 17 to 26 today uh, of chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 17 to 26. Uh, Next week, Pastor Jordan, assuming he's feeling better by next week, next week Pastor Jordan will be preaching for us, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure you are too. But today we will be continuing our study in John. This has been an interesting chapter. It's a chapter that deals with grief. It's a chapter that deals with with trials. Uh, And none of us, we have to remember this, whenever we're, we're talking about grief and trials as Christians, none of us are immune from these things. Even as Christians, we experience times of trial, times of grief. And we have to remember that God is using those things for a purpose, that being... Of, of, of everything. There, of course, could be several reasons, but one thing always remains certain in a trial, and that is that God is using it to conform us to the image of Christ. But the question that this passage today confronts us with is this. How do you deal with grief or loss when a person that you love dies? Maybe you haven't had to deal with that in your life yet, or or I guess maybe you have. It just depends on a lot of factors, like how old you are, and so on and so forth. Most of us remember exactly how it felt the first time somebody we loved died. If you've ever loved somebody who has died, you had to learn, on the spot kind of, how to grieve. I remember my grandfather dying when I was a teenager and having no idea how to process those emotions. You kind of have to do it on the spot. But if you haven't known uh, someone or loved someone who has died, it's good for you to just get a head start on knowing how to grieve before you actually get there because the mortality rate is still running at 100%. Uh, 100 out of 100 people are going to die And if the Lord prolongs his return, that trend will continue. I've only preached two funerals or memorial services in my time as a pastor. Um, I remember when I was asked to preach my first memorial service, 
I just read as many books and blogs as I possibly could in a week's time. Uh, and, and while a lot of what I read has escaped my memory, I'll never forget the advice of one blog, which was this. Just accept the fact that people need to grieve and allow them to grieve. Accept the fact that people need to grieve and allow them to grieve. And that's important to underscore because there are some Christians who would say that we never need to grieve, especially when we're talking about the death of a believer. I've heard stories of people who were grieving the death of a spouse or maybe even a child um, and of Christians coming to them and saying something like, why are you sad? He's in heaven now, you know, rejoice. And to me, that, that just strikes me as being very cruel unwise and, and unloving. That's, that's one extreme, but there's another extreme that we need to be careful not to cross into, and that is going to the point where we grieve as if there's no hope. So it's about finding a balance, because as Christians, we should never grieve as if there's no hope, but at the same time, we do have to grieve. In our study of John's gospel today, we're going to see some very helpful and practical insight into finding that balance between these two extremes. We'll see how to grieve and yet maintain hope. Jesus has been ministering, if we remember, uh, since the end of chapter 10, he's been ministering in the region of uh, out by the Jordan River where John the Baptist had been ministering. When word came to Jesus uh, out in this region that a close friend of his whom he loved, Lazarus of Bethany, was very ill. And we learned that because Jesus loved Lazarus, remember this? Because Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sisters, uh, Lazarus' sisters, Jesus delayed going to Bethany to be with them. The reason he delayed is because he loved them. The disciples were concerned when Jesus finally did declare his intentions to go to Bethany because Bethany was in the region of Judea where the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus for blasphemy. Remember, he had claimed to be God very explicitly back in chapter 10. But Jesus saw their concerns, heard their concerns, and lightly rebuked the disciples, reminding them that it was important to do the work that God had given them while they still could. We can imagine that Mary and Martha, having sent this message to Jesus, what they must have been going through as they were waiting for Jesus to arrive. Was it right to send the message to Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. To, to cast their cares into the Lord's hands? You, you can't get more right than that. That was absolutely the right thing to do. But then they had to wait and wait and wait and we can only imagine what must have been going through their minds as they were waiting. They believed that Jesus was the one and only person who could help. That he alone could heal their brother Lazarus. And we can imagine that they probably had a friend stationed out by the road that came into Bethany waiting for Jesus to arrive. Waiting for him to appear on the horizon. But the time came when Lazarus died and Jesus hadn't come at least not yet. But in the text that we'll be looking at today, Jesus will arrive, and he'll have a very interesting and insightful conversation 
uh, with Martha. Ultimately, we'll see that the point of this passage is that while Christians certainly have room to grieve, having faith in Christ empowers us to maintain hope and to deal with grief in a healthy, God-glorifying manner. So our text begins with Jesus' arrival at Bethany. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. It says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. So we're told um, right off the bat here that as soon as Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. This is a, a hot region, a very, very warm region, uh, and it would have been the normal custom to bury somebody on the day they die because it's such a hot and dry region. Uh, rot sets into a, a corpse immediately in those kinds of conditions. And so for the health of the community and for the health of those who would be handling Lazarus's body, uh, it's almost 100% certain they would have buried him the day that he died. So he obviously would have died sometime after Mary and Martha had sent the messenger, but before, uh, obviously, Jesus departed to get there. So it was somewhere in between there. We don't know exactly, but it seems at least possible that uh, Lazarus could have been buried on the day that the messenger left. It's possible that Lazarus died uh, soon after the messenger left, before the messenger even got uh, to Jesus. So Jesus was probably about 20 or 30 miles away. And even on horseback, that's close to, you know, a, a day's uh, travel, uh, a day's journey. Uh, so if Lazarus died on the day that the messenger was sent, Jesus would have stayed in the region where he was already ministering for an extra two days, another day or two, and then arrived on the fourth day in Bethany. But we have to remember as we consider all these things here, that Jesus did not arrive later than he intended. Let me say that again. Jesus did not, intend, did not arrive later than he intended. Rather, he got there exactly when he wanted to get there. Some commentators have noted that there was an ancient Jewish tradition that the soul of a deceased person would linger and, and kind of remain near the body of a, of a deceased corpse for three days, uh, after which the body would begin to decay more quickly. Um, seems more like a superstition, uh, but the, the idea was that if Jesus arrived on the fourth day, he eliminated those superstitious beliefs about Lazarus's soul lingering near his body, uh, and, and it, in other words, clearing up the, uh, the opportunity for him to, per, to perform this miracle without them saying, oh, well, it's because the soul of Lazarus was lingering near his body. So he's, he's opening up the possibility. That's, that's one possible, possible explanation for why he waited until the fourth day. Um, but there are other possible explanations. Uh, one commentator I read said that uh, each day that he is gone, uh, that, that, he, that he's... Um, 
that, that Lazarus is deceased is supposed to represent a thousand years. And 4,000 years have passed since the fall of Adam uh, and Eve in the garden uh, and the coming of Christ. Um, I think this is a little bit far-fetched, uh, but some commentators that are, that are, uh, that are solid, um, you know, very good commentators, that's the explanation they prefer. Either way, whatever the case may be, we might not, not have any idea why Jesus waited until the fourth day, but the point is that Jesus arrived on the fourth day intentionally. He did not arrive later than he meant to. He got there exactly when he intended to. Now, it's important for us to understand that after four days in the tomb, Lazarus physically would be an accurate representation of the unregenerate man spiritually. That is to say that after being dead for four days, Lazarus is now a physical picture of man's fallen spiritual condition. As filled with physical decay as man by nature is uh, with spiritual decay due to sin. Lazarus was physically dead and he had no physical ability. Just as man by nature is spiritually dead and has no spiritual ability ability by nature. We read here that many Jews have come. Many Jews, and that includes, by the way, religious leaders. Uh, They had come from Jerusalem, which was very close by, we read, uh, to grieve over Lazarus' death with Mary and Martha. Now, in first century Judaism, it was normal, it it was custom, it was tradition to have a prolonged period of mourning and grieving. Those were considered to be essential uh, for the death of a loved one. In fact, uh, there were even certain people whose job it was to go from uh, you know, one place to another grieving with people whose family members had died. But I believe that another reason the Holy Spirit would have us know that Jerusalem was only two or three miles away, how close it was to Bethany, was to show us, to remind us of how close in proximity Jesus was to Jerusalem when He performed this miracle, which up to this point will be his greatest miracle. What possible excuse could the Jews who lived in and around Jerusalem have for ignorance or unbelief only a short time later when Jesus is tried by Pontius Pilate? There would be no excuse. There would be none whatsoever. They would have known what Jesus has done here. It was right in their backyard. So all of this sets the stage for the conversation that ensues between Jesus and Lazarus' sister Martha. And by the way, isn't it interesting that Martha is the one who goes out and greets Jesus and not Mary? I think if we remember what we know about Mary and Martha based on other texts, it seems like Mary would be the one to go out and meet Jesus. Martha's the one who likes to stay busy doing all these things. Mary's the one who is always wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. But in this case, Mary stays behind. Martha's the one who comes to Jesus, and her proactive, uh, busy nature in coming to Jesus is rewarded with great comfort that can only be found in Jesus as she receives words of hope and encouragement from Jesus that Mary is going to have to wait for. So let's continue looking at verses 21 to 26. 
Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So we see in Martha's initial response to seeing Jesus, something that exists in every single one of us, something that exists in every single true believer, and that's this, this crazy strange balance, this mixture of grace and shortcoming, of faith and frailty. That is, there are areas where she is grounded in solid truth, and there are areas in which her heart is wandering astray like a ship with no rudder. And, and this is all reflected in her immediate response to seeing Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a mix of truth and error there. One commentator notes that her heart was speaking through her lips. Some people see her words as kind of a harsh rebuke to Jesus. I don't. I don't think that she's rebuking Jesus at all. I see a woman who is grieving a woman who is simply pouring her heart out to Jesus. I mean, she, she certainly could have said stuff that was worse than this, right? She could have spoken more harshly to Jesus than this, couldn't she? I mean, she could have said, you know, Jesus, it's about time. You, you took too long to get here. That would be a rebuke. That, that's pretty harsh. Uh, she could have said, you got a lot of nerve showing your face around here, uh, you know, she could have said things that would have been much, much more harsh, uh, much more of a rebuke. But that's not what she's trying to do. She's not trying to rebuke Jesus. She knows who Jesus is. And she's not going to rebuke God incarnate. She's just verbally pouring out the feelings and the emotions of a hurting, aching, grieving heart. By the way, you we do know that we can do that with God, right? We, we can cast our cares on Him. We, we can bring every concern, every hurt that we have to Him. You, you don't have to pretend with Him. In fact, it's, it's futile to pretend with Him because He sees through. He, he knows it all. He knows what you're feeling. You, you don't have the right to rebuke God but how many times do the, the Psalms, if you just were to look at the Psalms, how many times do the psalmists express frustration over the fact that God doesn't seem, at least on the surface, doesn't seem to be doing anything, at least not what, what they would have expected in the moment. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. That's an invitation to you and to me and to every other child of God to do exactly what Martha is doing here in our text in John. Just pouring her heart out, casting her cares upon God. 
God's willingness to graciously hear and bear our burdens is illustrated right here for us by Jesus' compassionate, tender, gentle, loving response as he ministers to her in the midst of her incredible grief. We see a mixture of, of truth and error in her words. What does she have right here? Well, she clearly has faith in Christ. She's confident in who he is. She knows that he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. She's right about all these things, right? She's right about all these things. She sees Jesus as the one person, the one friend who could have and would have made a difference in whether or not her brother died. And she's right about all that. And yet, both Martha and Mary seem to have believed, at least in the moment, that Jesus' ability to heal Lazarus depended on him being there with Lazarus. I, I have to imagine, I have to believe that they knew better in their minds. But here's what happens when we grieve. Our minds go practically blank when it comes to theological truths. What happens so often with Christians who are grieving is that the disconnect that, that always exists to some degree between what's in our minds and what's in our, our hearts, it broadens. That disconnect broadens when we're in a moment of grief. The things that Martha knew intellectually, her heart has lost sight of. By the way, that's one reason, friends, that every single one of us should be putting Scripture to memory. You need, to be able, you need to be able and prepared to preach the Word of God and the promises of God to your own heart in situations involving deep grief. Let me recommend Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Those are two great truths to cling to. Romans 8.28, of course, says we know that God is causing all things to work together, all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are great truths to cling to when you are grieving. If you don't have them memorized, you won't have them to cling to in a moment of grief. And I'm not saying you have to go with those two, but those are just two examples. Have something set to memory, hidden in your heart, so that when you grieve, you can preach to your own heart. It's important to be able to do that. It seems very likely that Martha was familiar with the times, or she should have been very familiar with the times, that Jesus had healed people or even raised them from the dead without even being in their presence, without even being by that person. We saw that happen back in, uh, in chapter 4, uh, you know, with the, the nobleman's son. And yet, as her heart is just in so much grief, just drowning in anguish, her mind has forgotten. Now, you don't need to, to know these kinds, uh, you don't only need to know these things for times ahead in which you may grieve. That's important. To be able to minister to your own heart in moments of grief, that is important, but it's also so that you may minister 
to a fellow brother or sister in Christ when they are grieving. When somebody is filled with sorrow and grief, when a brother or sister in Christ has lost a loved one, a loved one and they're, they're hurting and they're drowning in anguish and they're struggling to cling to biblical truths and the promises of God, our responsibility is not to chastise them, not to rebuke them, but to remember how easy it is for us to lose sight of these theological truths, these anchors when we're in moments of grief and to gently and graciously and tenderly remind them of the biblical principles and promises that help to steady our hearts in the midst of trials and tribulations. A second mistake that Martha makes here is simply in assuming that it was Jesus' will that Lazarus wouldn't die. That wasn't Jesus' will at all, was it? Now, Jesus had something better in store than just keeping Lazarus alive. Jesus had something more important than comfort in mind. And that is, the thing that he had in mind is the growth of Martha's faith and Mary's faith and Lazarus's faith and the faith of the disciples and the faith, as we'll see in the next chapter, of all these people who would come to believe in Jesus after Lazarus is raised from the grave. Jesus had something better in mind than comfort. And so, Jesus did not arrive later than he intended. But the first lesson for us here, friends, is one that you would be wise to cling to, and it's this. Don't be quick to assume that God has let you down or abandoned you or disappointed you when you're in the midst of a trial that involves grieving. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us any room at all to see things that way. What the Bible does give us room to do is to assume that God knew that you needed something far more, something far better than comfort or steadiness or well-being. Did Jesus ever promise that we wouldn't encounter trials? No, He didn't. But His Word does promise us even Better, something even better than a life without grief. His word promises us that he will be with us in the trials of life, that he'll be strengthening us and sustaining us through the trials of life, and that whatever trials we may find ourselves in, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, God has ordained it for his glory and for our greatest good, a greatest good that could not be accomplished as well if God would have navigated us around this trial. Our trials are necessary. And only an all-wise God knows how to use them for His glory and for our good. And our God is an all-wise God. So Paul asks this basic rhetorical question in Romans 8.35. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he answers that question in verse 37, writing, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And we need to remember that when we're grieving because that's part of the grieving process is wondering, have I been separated from God's love? That is a normal thing for people to wrestle with. 
And I've, I've talked with people who are wrestling with that. And Paul gives us the answer, no, in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In times of grief and hardship, do we conquer? Not exactly. We overwhelmingly conquer in times of grief and hardship. That doesn't mean that we won't have grief and hardship. It means that God has lovingly decreed our trials and our struggles in order that we might grow in Christ's likeness. Why would He do that? Because He loves us so much that He sent His only Son to redeem us. And that's just the beginning. Redemption's only the beginning. Then comes sanctification. That's our growth in Christ's likeness. That's the lifelong process of becoming more like Christ. And we are so unlike Christ by nature. How could we ever imagine that it would be a walk in the park to become more like Jesus? No, that is a, we're a million miles away. And sometimes the only thing that can make us more like Jesus is hardship and trial. Because those times teach us to quit relying on ourselves. They turn our hearts more fully to God. Martha still has faith in Jesus, by the way. Let's not lose sight of that. She still believes in Jesus. She still has a faith that is anchored to Christ. And thus, she follows those words up by adding, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now what does she have in mind there? I honestly have no idea, and, and neither did any commentary that I, that I read. Uh, I don't think there's any way for us to know exactly what she had in mind here. Uh, we do know that one thing she did not have in mind was her brother being raised from the grave on the spot. Uh, she knows uh, that that's going to happen at the end of days, at the, at the final resurrection, at the end of days. But then later on in the chapter, when Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and instructs that it be opened, she tries to stop Jesus from going in. She says to him in verse 39, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead for four days. So she doesn't expect a resurrection. She doesn't expect Jesus to go in and raise him from the dead right there. It seems far, far more likely that what Martha is doing, what she's expressing, she is just believing that Jesus alone can comfort and console her grieving heart. And that is absolutely 100% correct. She believes that it's too late for Jesus to do something about what's happened to Lazarus, and she's absolutely wrong about that. But she rightly believes that Jesus can give her heart comfort and peace in the midst of her grief, and she's right on target with that. So here we are again with this this crazy mixture of truth and error, of, of faith and frailty. And so Jesus speaks to her, and, and these are the very first words that he says to her. And in, in these words, he gives her a promise that she can cling to. He says, your brother will rise again. He, he doesn't say when, and he doesn't say how. Again, she's not expecting or even asking Jesus to raise Lazarus from the grave. She thinks that Jesus is talking about the end of days. Sometime in the future when God has ordained that the great resurrection would take place. And, and while that's true, that he will be raised on that day, we know that Jesus meant something a lot more immediate to her circumstances. Not 
the, the final resurrection, but something in the here and now. He says, your brother will rise again. By the way, if you need ideas for my tombstone someday, that would work. But Martha, in her, in her response to this promise spoken by Jesus, she does something else that, that we're all so prone to do. And that is to live as if the promises of God have no application to our lives in the present. We look forward to heaven, right? Don't we all look forward to heaven? But we all have this tendency to live as if that's then and this is now and there's nothing that I have now. I got to wait until then to have it. The promises of God apply to us even now. When Paul speaks of us overwhelmingly conquering, he doesn't say we will overwhelmingly conquer. He says we do. It would be true to say of the future, of course, but he's speaking of the present. He wrote in the tense that indicates that it's actually not only present, but ongoing. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's present, ongoing into the future. The implication is that we will overwhelmingly conquer someday. It's more than that. It's that we're doing it now by the grace and the providence of God. Friends, the best way to minister to anybody who is grieving is to point them to Christ. And that's true whether that's a believer or an unbeliever. An unbeliever needs to be pointed to Christ. A believer needs to be reminded of the promises that apply to every Christian in the here and now. And when we do that, especially with a brother or sister in Christ who's grieving, when we do that, we, we direct the grieving heart to once again finding comfort in Jesus. Reminding them of those promises, those anchors. And again, Paul models this for us as well. The Christians in Thessalonica were grieving for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were dying before the return of Christ. They wrongly assumed that the people who were dying were going to miss the boat, so to speak, that they were going to miss the return of Christ. And so Paul wrote this to them in his letter to them, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. There's that euphemism. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. About those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So Paul is addressing the fact that we should be unlike the world in our grieving. The world has no reason to have any hope in their grief. But we do. We have every reason to have hope when we're talking about the death of a Christian. Paul's saying that there's a place for Christians to grieve, yet their hope in Christ's coming and the promise of the resurrection should make our grief different than the world's grief. And he goes on to explain that in some detail, assuring the Thessalonians that those who have died before the return of Christ haven't missed the boat and, 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 include, and concludes his thoughts by encouraging them this way. He says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. 
In other words, these are people who are grieving. What are we supposed to do with people who are grieving? Remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. One of the earliest books written in the Old Testament, if not the earliest, is the book of Job. That might have actually been the first one put on a scroll. And we see Job's confident, conquering hope in a future resurrection. When he declares in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. There's proof that the Bible is inspired. How would he have known that if the Holy Spirit had not informed him of it? The promise of dwelling forever in glory with God has always been the hope and the comfort and the assurance of God's people. And that promise, friends, is ours to cling to and believe in amidst the grief and suffering that we encounter in the trials of this life. It's a truth that Martha is clinging to in the midst of her own grief here. But Jesus wants to grow her faith. He wants to enlarge her understanding of the resurrection. And so he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And by saying these things, Jesus is gradually tenderly revealing to her the truth that her comfort wasn't just something in the distant future for her to have someday, but the turning to Jesus for comfort in the present was hers in the moment. Now let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is trying to grow the faith of these people, of Lazarus, of Mary and Martha and the disciples. And that starts with two words that remind us of a very important truth, right? What are the two words that this sentence starts out with? I am. I am. Of course, that's a claim to be God. That comes from, that's a reference to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where Moses says, who am I supposed to tell the Israelites sent me? And God says, I am. I am. So in other words, by using these words, Jesus is saying he's not just another human teacher who can give her information about the resurrection of the dead someday, but he is the sovereign God who stands with the keys of life and death in his hands, both physical and spiritual, in the present. That is, instead of turning her to something kind of abstract and distant in the future, Jesus is turning her heart to him in the present to find comfort. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, When Jesus returns physically at the end of this age, there will be a physical resurrection then also. At other times, as today, Jesus is spiritually present, so there is a spiritual resurrection rather than a physical one. End quote. In other words, if you have repented and believed savingly in Jesus, this applies to you. 
You were dead in your sins. You were as spiritually dead as Lazarus was physically dead. And you were as spiritually helpless as Lazarus was physically helpless. If you have spiritual life today, it's only and entirely because God, by His grace, gave you spiritual life. And if you should die before the Lord returns, you'll also be physically resurrected unto life everlasting on the last day. Jesus' second clause, the second statement in verse 26, completes his teaching on the resurrection and the life that he gives. He says in verse 26, and everyone who believes and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So there are two clauses here in verses 25 and 26. And they can be interpreted a variety of ways. The first way that we could interpret these two clauses in 25 and 26 would be to see them both in a spiritual sense. In other words, uh, this understanding would have us to interpret this to mean that Jesus was saying something like, whoever believes in me, even though you were spiritually dead, you'll become spiritually alive. And if you're spiritually alive and persevere in your faith, you'll never die spiritually. That's possible. A second interpretation of this would be to take the first clause that we find in verse 25, take that clause physically, and the second clause in verse 26, take that spiritually. In other words, it would paraphrase into something like this. Jesus saying, everyone who believes in me, even if you physically die, you'll one day physically live again. That's, of course, speaking of a bodily resurrection in the future. And if you've been granted spiritual life, you'll, you'll never experience spiritual death. This interpretation, unlike the first, actually deals with Martha, where she is right now uh, in her grief. Uh, Charles Spurgeon had a different interpretation of these two clauses. Instead of interpreting them as both referring to life in a spiritual sense or interpreting one in the physical and one in a spiritual sense, He believed that both were to be interpreted in a physical sense. So to paraphrase Jesus by that interpretation, Spurgeon was essentially saying that Jesus said, if you die physically by the time of my return, you'll be resurrected physically. And if you're still alive when I return, you'll never die physically. If you're wondering which view I prefer, I prefer the second one. That's the only one that seems to make sense to me. And again, it speaks to Martha right where she is. I believe that Jesus is illustrating spiritual truth with physical truth as he did so often. It gives us the comforting promise of life right here in the present present moment and the assurance that all who believe in Christ already have hope in the spiritual life that we have in Christ and we have that to cling to right now. Christ is the resurrection, and the life, both physically and spiritually. And by the way, there's a reason that he puts these two things, these two terms, in the order that he does. He doesn't say, I'm the life and the resurrection. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And there's a good reason for that. As A.W. Pink notes, he says, quote, Christ is to us the resurrection before he is the life. The sinner is dead in trespasses and sins in the grave of guilt separated from God. He has his dwelling among the tombs. His first need is to be brought out of this awful place, and this occurs at his regeneration. 
end quote. So when God regenerates a person, he gives them life to believe, not because they believed. There's a huge difference between those two things. One is a gift and one is a reward. Salvation is a gift. It's not a reward. A dead person can't believe. So it makes sense that a dead person must be resurrected first. They must be granted spiritual life first in order that they may truly believe. Consider what Jesus said back in chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, when he told the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but has passed, speaking past tense, has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The question that that raises for us is how are they going to hear if they're dead? And why do only some dead hear but not all? It's because they must first be given life. Resurrection life. Spiritual life. That's why Jesus puts these two terms in this order. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the resurrection first, and he's the life. Regeneration necessarily precedes faith. Regeneration necessarily comes before faith. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's telling us that he holds the keys of life and death. He's telling us that He's the answer to our grief. He's the answer to our sorrow. He's the answer to our anxiety and all of our troubles. And this is exactly why Jesus ends by asking an important question. Not just of Martha, but of everyone. Look at the end of verse 26. Jesus asks her, and He may as well be asking you and me as well. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? See, to believe in Jesus is to find the answer to the unavoidable question of death. And it is to possess the spiritual life, the resurrection, eternal life that Jesus gives his people in the here and now. If you have truly believed in Jesus Christ, You are free from the power of death and the curse of sin even now before your death. That doesn't mean you won't die, but it does mean that your death won't be final. It means that you have a life that begins now and keeps going even through death. And knowing this enables us to live our lives in the here and now with no fear of spiritual or physical death, which allows us to see ourselves as a people who in this life, we have absolutely nothing to lose and everything in the world to gain, even in death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you believe this? That's the question Jesus is confronting us with. Do you believe this? Do you believe what the Scriptures teach? Do you believe what the Scriptures promise? I mean, there are so many promises in the Bible. 
Do you believe them? Do you believe that they apply to you? Do you believe that Jesus is able to make good on every promise? You need to learn and and know those promises before you encounter grief so that you may cling to those promises before you encounter grief. They are anchors in moments of grief. See, true, true belief, true saving faith is an issue of trust. If you don't trust God to be faithful to the promises that he's made, then of course you're not going to cling to those promises either. If you haven't believed, I have to warn you that God has clearly revealed to us that it is appointed for men to die once and after that comes judgment. God's word teaches that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those who have believed will be resurrected unto life, and those who did not believe will be resurrected into the second death. By the way, that doesn't mean the end of your existence or the end of your conscience. It means eternal conscious torment. And the only way to escape that judgment, the only way to escape that torment, the only way to escape God's wrath in the future is to receive life in Christ right now. And the way to do that is to believe in Him, to believe in Christ and believe that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Do you believe this? Friends, you probably know people who do not have life in Christ. Friends, maybe, perhaps even family members, Don't wait to share the gospel with them. They too must believe these things. And in order for them to believe, somebody must go. Somebody must tell them. Because they're not just going to figure it out on their own one day. But having faith in Christ empowers us as believers to maintain hope and to deal with grief in a healthy, God-glorifying manner. If you have life in Christ, it is impossible for you to not want for your friends and for your family members to have that same life, to have that same assurance, to have that same power and that same comfort to cling to in times of grief, which inevitably come for everybody. If you have life in Christ, if you've believed in Him, No sorrow will ever sink you. No struggle will ever shipwreck you. No circumstance will ever shatter you. Because through Christ, you are an overwhelming conqueror. Do you believe this? I pray that you do. And that Christ himself and Christ alone would be your greatest hope, your greatest comfort, your greatest assurance in life and in death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the resurrection and the life. We thank you that he has died 
to make reconciliation with you a reality for those who believe. We thank you that he lived the perfect life, the life that we could not live, the life that we fail at every second of our existence. And yet, his perfect righteousness is credited to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Thank you that he bore our sin. Thank you that he gave us his righteousness, that we may stand before you forgiven as your children. Help us, O Lord, to cling to these promises, not only in times of comfort and well-being, but also, Lord, teach us and train us by the power of your Spirit to know these promises and to believe these promises and to cling to them in times of grief and trial. That Christ and his power over life and death may be demonstrated in our comfort that we find in him in the midst of hard times in life. All for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.